0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Essex family, North Avenue, watching online. Good morning. You probably can't tell, but I had a physical this week, and they tell me I'm incredible. I know you couldn't tell, but uh, I, this is my, I get a, every six months to do a physical, but every year is the big one, you know, and the blood work and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm in there, they came back and said, Man, your numbers are fantastic. I mean, your cholesterol's down, everything's down. Uh, she did say, the one, the one concern is, you know, your blood pressure is good, but one concern is your, your good cholesterol's low. And uh, we've got to raise that up a little bit. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm amenable to things. I said, Okay, what do I got to do? I said, Well, what, what do I have to eat? She goes, to raise that up, you're going to have to do, you know, start eating like avocados, nuts, vegetables, fruits. <laughs> I said, okay, what, what, what else? I said, what, what else can we do? You know, is there a pill you What else can we do? She goes, well, fish, do you like fish? I go, absolutely. So that was on Tuesday. And so from Tuesday on, I've had uh, four fried fish dinners uh, <clears throat> because they said fish was, the, fish was the key. I'm down like 20 pounds. Uh, all my numbers are good. And I got to tell you right now. I'm an Adonis. I mean, I'm just—it's uh, just incredible. I told my family that, and they all looked at me and go, "What is that?" I go, "Ah, oh, that just ruins everything. Ruins everything." Hey, before we get into the word this morning and continue our series, I want to take a moment and just remind us uh, of some process that we go through as we will make decisions about different things. Let me give you some background. You know, COVID's still taking place. We're back in person, and uh, some of the, rest- the restrictions, of course, have been lowered and lowered and lowered. But how about every week I'll get at least a phone call, an email, a question about uh, the COVID uh, protocols, about coming back. Folks say, I want to come back, but I don't see a lot of masks. And, and so there are a lot of questions that will be posed along the way. Uh, and I just want to go back and just want to uh, refresh uh, how we arrive at some questions and answers. Because I sat with staff this week and was kind of reminding them as to how we arrive at answers. And one of the staff said, you know, it'd be good to remind the whole church body because you kind of forget some of those things. So I just want to give you some, some quick background and some perspective. One of the things that we decided, early on in COVID, when, I mean, early on, all of a sudden, everything's closed. You might recall that day, I mean, we went from church to nothing. Uh, And so we're all locked down, and we're all in our houses. And even then, we started going through a process to say, well, how are we going to arrive at decisions along the way because we knew it was going to be a a bumpy road. So one of the things we decided early on is that we would not make decisions. I would not make them. A single person would not make them. Even a small group would not make them based on like a corporate feeling or a corporate sense or whatever. Because here's the deal. Early on in the process and all along in this process of COVID, you've heard pastors in the news and come online and say, we will not mask and we're going to sing and we're going to stay open and we're going to do all those things. Quite honestly, that spiritual arrogance that's what it sounds like to me that doesn't doesn't sound like a standing for the word of God that sounds like a little bit of a spiritual arrogance that says despite anything else we're going to do x y or z on the other side I have talked to a number of Christians who quite honestly are living in a complete state of fear a complete state of fear like this thing is overcoming the world and we got to be careful all those kind of pieces and then to that I say we're not called to live in fear either I had a conversation with a doctor friend happens to be Jewish, and, and uh, we, were, we were just talking, been, been, been friends for years, and he made the statement, said something, about, yeah, the COVID thing, it's quite frightening, isn't it? And I went, Doc, you and I, we got the same God here, you know, Jehovah, you know, the, the big one. And I go, we don't live in fear, right? Oh, no, no, not us. I'm talking about other people are very afraid. <laughs> So what I strive for and what I'm hoping in the body of Christ would be that place of balance and yet understanding that every one of us is wired differently. And on top of how we're wired, every one of us has different physical issues that are unique to us and kind of walking through through life, trying to navigate things. So I say that to say that we decided early on that we're not going to make a decision based on how I get up and feel or how a group feels, but we have a number of things. We look at what the governor says, we look at any mandates from the governor, mandates from health department, we look at other churches, our size, other groups are doing uh, actively in our area, in our region, and of course, we compare it always to Scripture. And we always want to say, is what we're doing or what we're asked to do or mandated to do, does it fit within the scope of Scripture? If it doesn't, we've got to respond to that. We've got to react to that. But if it it does, then we act accordingly. So that's why, as some people will ask at times, that we don't have a mask mandate because the governor doesn't have a mask mandate. The health department has a mask mandate. If they come back and mandate that, we'll look at that again and say, all right, there's a reason they put it in place. And as we have in the past, we have followed that. But... But I also want to say we have COVID protocols that we absolutely follow about you staying home if you're sick, all those kind of things. Uh, If you you choose to wear a mask, wear it and wear it with pride. If you choose not to wear a mask, don't wear it and don't be prideful about it. You know what I'm saying? You got to find that middle ground of balance. Uh, we have, we have uh, sanitizer that we'll give to people. You've come in, if you come in someday and you either forgot your mask or you walk in and you just think, "Oh, I think I want a mask, we have them. We have them to distribute and give to folks. But if we watch those mandates, we watch the group, and one person did ask, which is a very good question, I mean, great question. When I was listening, we listened to the governor's office, the health department. They said, well, how, you didn't listen, mention the CDC, listen, you know, listening to them. And please know that we do. However, don't forget that groups like the CDC a group like The, like the Who. Um, yeah, you know them, right? World Health Organization. Yeah. Some are, you are going, what musical? What year? what year were they? You know? Um <clears throat> For those groups that put out mandates, they're making very much universal mandates. So we do listen to them. However, we do that through the filter of our local health department because those are universal mandates. Local health departments make the change. If you live in Pennsylvania, it's probably going to be a different application to what they say than in Vermont. So we do listen to those. I, I, I have been all through this process in contact regularly. Uh, we're one of the largest churches, largest evangelical church in the state. Um, and uh, I. Uh, you know, Betsy and I, and I'll say governor's office, but it's not the governor's office, but over Betsy and I have gotten on a first name basis. When I first called early on the process to get questions answered, it was kind of like, oh, who are you? Uh, and now something comes up, I call, and she'll say, hey, Scott, so what's your question this time? And so we ask the question, and uh, usually it's like, that's a really good question. We got to figure that one out. So that's, we, we take every decision very seriously. Every issue very seriously, uh, and we and we take a, a bunch of information, and not just how I might feel in a given day, or a group of elders, or leaders, or whatever. We take the, all that information, put that in, and then say, "Oh, here's our decision. Here's the final statement." We do so prayerfully. We do so carefully. We've not made any decision along the way, just tritely, um, because ultimately we want to honor God. We want to protect people. So we don't do this. We don't do so in a trite manner. But here's the deal: any decision. We'll find someone on the opposite side of it. I mean, if you disagree that we should have mask mandates right now, please know, I just say, welcome to my world. Um, Because every decision along the way uh, is met with some other side that says, no, shouldn't do that, or we should do something else. So I've been telling people this. So if you don't like the current decision... Just hold on because I'm sure there'll be a, some other decision that'll come where you'll like it and somebody else won't. And then, and then you'll be on the winning side. So just walk with us as we walk through this together. And uh, we all long for the day when this is uh, all in the, in the rear view mirror uh, and off we go. And uh, we'll, we'll do so I uh, hopefully in grace. Final comment is this. <clears throat> I continue to be alarmed in the general culture of our world, but also in the culture of the church where the judgmentalism is ratcheting up and to levels where if you don't hold to this particular view um, politically or if you do mask or you don't mask or you vaccine or you don't vaccine, the judgmentalism is off the charts. Not in the body of Christ. It's just not supposed to be present in the body of Christ. And so we walk, we walk together saying, hey, God's called us to minister to the, vaccinate, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. He's called us to be in the body of Christ together. And one of the ways the world will see us as different is how we respond to one another when we don't agree. So let's, let's, let's make that proclamation that we are in this body of Christ. And one of the marks is how we get along how we treat one another. This morning we're going to continue in our series, I Have a Question. This series, as I defined it last week, is for anyone who has yet to say yes to Jesus Christ. It's for anyone that is, is yet to say yes to following Christ. you're not a believer you're not a Christian. It's also for those uh, who are believers to better understand the relationship that God wants to have with us and, and how our own relationships work. because as I've been defining, and we'll talk it a little bit more this morning, as I've been defining how a person first comes to Christ just so you'll know, even if you say, "Oh, I did that years ago, how we then grow in Christ is very, very similar in process, so it'd be worth listening to and learning on that. And of course, the other part of this is. It will help those of us who are believers better understand how to more authentically relate and speak to others who are not yet followers of Christ. Now part of my motivation, this as we started last week, we started by learning that if you have ever heard the story of Jesus, you've heard about Christianity, you've had the opportunity to become a Christian, and you are still not a Christian, you are not a follower of Christ for a reason. I mean, there's a reason why you haven't said yes. And of course, we said this, there isn't a defined reason, there's a reason, multiple reasons, and whatever reason is yours. And we said that there's no universal response, but in your mind, you might be saying, well, I have a question about this thing. I, this question, I got a question about this whole God thing. I got a question about the Bible. I got a question about, you know, God saying that he's the only way. You can have questions about it. I got questions about suffering in the world. You can have these obstacles as we've referred to them. But the bottom line, if we narrow it down, if we could get into anyone's head, and heart there would be some obstacle if you've heard about the gospel story you've had the opportunity to respond to Christ and you haven't done it there's a reason now maybe we can't figure it out but somewhere in there there's a reason why you'd say nope that's not I'm not going to do that so some issue with God now, answering all your questions, and what's one of the key things we said last week? Answering all your questions. So your questions are absolutely legitimate, though they are necessary to get answered. That I mean, no one's trying to skirt the issues, but answering all your questions still does not lead someone to the place of making a decision. One of the things that I've seen in my own life, when I've had questions of God, I seldom do I get all my questions answered before I'm, I'm forced to do something about it. But I've also said this, and part of the reasoning for my approach is part of, part of that is this. In all of my years of doing ministry... And I have the gift of evangelism. That's not a bragging thing. That's just an assessment of who I am. I have the gift of evangelism. And, and maybe I'm not a big, a big room evangelist, if you will. But I, I have seen God work through my giftedness to be able to sit down to someone and have a conversation. And in the middle of that conversation, be able to say, I got, I got what the issue is. I got the heart we got to get to. And, and, and start going in there and saying, so, so why not make this decision and, 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 and see results because of God's spirit at work? And in all of my years of talking to people about Jesus, christ i have yet to debate someone to christ i have yet to answer the obstacles to win them over i have yet now please know i've had multiple people where i've said write down all your questions and bring them and we'll talk them through see that's different than someone who says yeah i got some questions help me with them or someone who says listen i'm not i until a b c d i've yet to debate someone to jesus and so i don't do it anymore I don't debate. I don't argue. If they say, well, if you can prove, I just go, you know, I can't prove it. You win. Because the truth of it is, at the end of the day, we don't accomplish a whole lot. Now, I'll have a great conversation with anyone who wants to have it. But that's part of the thought process here is that a person, you as a person, if you ever ever decide to follow Jesus Christ, it will not be because someone came with a checklist of all of your issues. It will be because something happens in your life. That takes all of these obstacles and begins to frame them in your life in a personal way. And the obstacles typically never go away. Still have to be answered, still present, but they've kind of shrunk in size because now there's some kind of something personal that has happened. You might remember that last week we used men as the example, the pre-marriage men. You know, why, why not get married? And we said, these guys have these reasons for not wanting to get married and how come they'll never get married? And then what happened? Well, then they met, uh, they met a woman, they met a girl. And of course, what happened is before that, getting married or not getting married was a category. It was a thing. It was an abstract thing. But once they met someone, now it becomes personal. And see, God, your heavenly Father, really wants this to be personal. In fact, God doesn't meet anyone except for in a personal way. So make sure you understand that. God wants you to be personal because God is personal. And God doesn't meet anyone without being in a personal connection with one another. You know, when like when I when you hear someone say, and I've, heard, I've said this for the years, when somebody says, "Well, I'm committed to marriage," I think to myself, you know, I don't want Diane committed to marriage. I want my wife Diane committed to me. Diane really doesn't shouldn't be all excited because, they, well, I'm really committed to the institution of marriage. What she would like to hear me say is, I'm really, really committed to you, right? Because it's become personal. We're not talking about categories, not talking about abstract, but we're talking about personal things. Let me give you another example of how this plays out in, in, in real life, practical life. Do you ever talk to a single person uh, that's, you know, they're, they're, they're going to get married, maybe they're, maybe they're engaged, or maybe even some married couples engaged are going to be married or are recently married, that they, when they talk about having children? And it's been fun sometimes to hear some of the thought process about that as to either why they're not going to have children or uh, the thought process of, well, we're going to get married, we're going to have one. And it's abstract, going to have one. I mean, everybody should have one, going to have one. Or I've heard many couples, my own brother years ago, um, you made the argument saying why you should only have two children. So for fun, I've made a list. I made a list, and so I'm a parent, so I got some history here. I made a list of why people should only have one or two children at the most. So the first one, it's money. First one is money. I mean, let's just be honest, they cost more. You know, when you have one, there's a dollar sign that comes with it. Two, another dollar sign. Three, holy smokes, you're out of your mind, right? I mean, I got to tell you. Because the problem typically, two with three is with one, you know, you can use a lot of the same stuff. But by three, all the stuff you've got is now illegal and outlawed because it's not safe anymore. <laughs> and so by three, you've got to change it all anyway because you're breaking the law. And so you got that, not to mention the inventions they come up with. You know, when, when we had our first child, they had a pacifier. You know, we hadn't had you know, kids for years and years and years. Now our, our kids have kids, and they got wubbinubs. You know what a wubbinub is? I mean, some, some brilliant mother some brilliant mother took a pacifier, redesigned it, sewed it onto a little beanie, beanie baby stuff thing so that the baby can sit there with a pacifier in its mouth and this little bean-filled thing kind of sits on the chest and holds it in place. And the first time I thought, saw that, I thought, that's incredible. All the years I sat there watching the baseball game like this. I could have just... You know, and it weights itself there. So that's the first thing. It's just money. It's purely a matter of economics. The the second reason to not have more than two children is transportation. Transportation. Let me tell you right now, you got two kids, you got four. I mean perfect. You got you can pick any car that you want, because you got two in the front seat, two in the back seat, space in the middle. You go to three, you lost your space. <laughs> And you got three and they're in near proximity to one another, that is just trouble. And so then you gotta go big. I mean, minivan's it. Minivans it. So transportation, that just makes that just makes sense. Um, you know, the the next one's housing. Housing issues. You go to three kids and now you gotta add a bathroom. It's just it's just that simple. You got a bathroom for the kids, two, great, third bathroom because it's just gonna be a battle. You think, oh no, we'll be fine. You just haven't gotten to the teenage years yet. And then you're gonna have an issue. You got multiple bedrooms, you got all of that. So housing's an issue. This next one's a really big one, is that when you add a third child to the mix, now you create this thing called middle child syndrome middle child syndrome and you know it's don't do that to your children by creating middle child syndrome I mean some of you know what that what that is because you've come to church to try to sort out your past and problems because of it you know it's just that thing that happens because, and it makes sense see the first child comes and everybody just celebrates that child y'all attention's on that child everything about that child second child comes good it transfers but the problem is that The second one is right in the middle of getting all they need when the third one comes and man, you just drop that second one like a rock and just boom, we got to focus on this one. Now the other one's still there and you still love that one. But they're just standing there watching and the middle child syndrome's an issue. Please know my daughter watches from Pennsylvania, she's a middle child, I'll be hearing from her later this afternoon. Dana, I love you. I hope it's all good. So you got that issue. So you, got, you can't minimize that. And then the third, the, the last one on the list is, is parenting. It's just a parenting issue. I mean, I got to tell you right now, when you have two children, you got a man-to-man defense. I mean, you got two parents, two kids. You got one-on-one. I mean, it's, you got that. You, got, you can manage that. I tell you right now, when you go to three and they go to double team you, you are in trouble. And you think you got it when they're young. But at some point in time, one's dealing with one, one's dealing with two. The one with two is in trouble. You got to know how to send signals to each other and get help quickly. Because all of a sudden, this whole parenting thing has changed. Now, I'm going to add one more, which is the blank space. See, now we can agree in my reasons. And and I got to be honest with you, you can't disagree with my reasons. I mean, because they are spot on. I mean, they are written from experience. But you might have some other things that you want to add. So here's what I'm going to do real quick. I'm going to let you add some other reasons. I'm going to to let you shout out. So what are some of the other reasons not to have a third child? But to do that, I actually want to write them down. I'm going to ask for assistance. So I'll ask my assistant to come out. I need someone to write these things down as we're going to ask my assistant to come out. (laughs) So I've asked Adam to come out as, as to assist me. So that while you shout out the reasons why not to have a third child, he's going to jot down for us. Now, so get get in your thought process what it would be. And just before you do that, I forgot to introduce him. So Adam is my son, my third born. (laughs) He has two sisters all born before him. He would be the third child. So, I've asked Adam if he would jot down your responses as to why we should not have a third child. In this case, why we shouldn't have an Adam. So, Adam, you good to go? I'm on it. Okay. Also, take note of who's making these suggestions. So, ready? So, shout out why we shouldn't have Adam. All right. Thank Changes you. everything, doesn't it? Huh? Another Scott. Changes. Yeah, you don't want another Scott. That's probably the only legitimate <laughs> yeah. reason, but no. See, but it changes everything, right? You see, beforehand, we could laugh and we talk about things because they were abstract. The second I bring him out, it moves from abstract to incredibly personal. Personal for him, personal for me. Yeah, you can go. All right, thank you. (laughs) Uh, One, I didn't come up with that on my own. Uh, years ago, someone did something similar. Second of all, I wish I would have done that when he was like three or four, because then it would have cost me a quarter. And right now, I'm going for a steak dinner after church today, and, and uh, not good. So, but the whole—you get the point, right? See, in so many things, we talk about them in the abstract form, and then when it gets personal, it begins to change everything. And so many people have said, We're not going to have three children, we're going to have X amount, and all of a sudden they're in it, and there's a personal sense where it changes everything. Friends, listen carefully. In your relationship with Jesus Christ, it will not be because you've got a checklist of things, it will be because somewhere along the way you have been willing to say, Let me take a personal look at God. Because God is very, very personal. Do you know that the Bible actually ha- actually has one verse which many would consider to be a summary statement of Christianity? One verse that would be a summary statement of Christianity. The verse is an interesting verse as it is extraordinarily personal. Extraordinarily personal. It seems to move past all of the objections and all of the questions and all of the obstacles that people have. And in in my line of work, I have dealt with just about every obstacle in debate and dialogue with people through the years. And this one particular verse seems to cut through all of that, seems to get blow right past it. It seems to move past all of the emotional barriers that people have, the intellectual barriers, all of the questions that they have, either with the church, either with their own background, things of experience with Christians, whatever it might be. And it's also probably the most well-known and recognized verse in evangelical churches. It's in the book of John. And it's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, it doesn't get more personal than that. You can take that verse and you can say, how about that? The Bible has a summary verse i got to tell you, in multiple dialogues I've had with people who want to debate, I will bring them back to that verse and say, I want to show you a verse. I want to show you a verse because what this verse says is this. It it starts with, for God so loved. For God so loved. He so loved the world. For God so loved you that he did something. God so loved the world, God so loves me, God so loves you, that he got involved. You see, when those words, God so loved the world, God so loved me... When those words are actually fully understood, when those words finally strike strike a chord, when those words finally kind of get down inside, where you begin to understand the, the depth and the breadth and the enormity of the statement that this God who everyone sees is out there somewhere, so loved the world that he came and got involved in my life and in this world because of love. When that triggers finally in your head, in your heart that goes how about that it's a life it's a game changer life changer when that dawns on you everything on your list all of your objections all of your questions are not ignored are not shut down but all of a sudden they just shrink in size because you begin to be caught up with the thought is it possible that there is a god of this universe and is it possible that that this God of the universe would actually love me, actually care about me. And friends, very honestly, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you will stop and ponder that, and if it is possible, what can that possibly mean for my life? It's a game changer. Now, let me get into God's Word a little bit here for with with you in these moments. I want to give you an example and today's story we'll look at in God's Word does not take place 2,000 years ago with Jesus. It actually takes place 2,000 years before Jesus, so we're talking about 4,000 years ago. And it's a story, it's a snapshot out of Scripture. It's a story that we have in time, which is this very unique time. It's at a time after God had reset the world, he had the great flood that took place. And so God has got this reset taking place. And this is the first interaction that we see with God when God gets actively involved, if you will. And it's a very personal involvement. Now I have to remind you that when 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 the conversation we're going to look at that God has and this moment of his involvement, this is before the 10 commandments. This would be, there was no Testament, no Old Testament law. There were no instructions. There were no explanations. There was no great history of God in which to follow. Nothing written meaning we're in this period of time where there's no, there's no outline, there's no guardrails, there's no bumpers, if you will. There's nothing to define how we're supposed to live. So today, we can go, well, how, do I, how am I supposed to live as a Christian? Man, open the Bible, you got pages and pages of things. Even going back in time, thousands of years. So what's, what's the mandates of God? What is he required of me? You got, the, you got the Old Testament law, you got the Ten Commandments. This is before all of that. So if there was ever a time where someone could claim ignorance, it would be it. But it's also a time where you kind of get a free pass, if you will, almost, because there's no there's no definitions. I mean, this would be a kid's this would be a kid's playground, and you know, right? To parents say, You've given us no parameters, no parameters. And God is going to have a conversation. God revealed himself on his terms to an individual. Here's my theme this morning. We come to God on His terms. We don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on His terms. God revealed Himself in such a way that was the exact opposite of how the rest of the known world at that time, and for, even for you know, thousands of years after that, understood or looked at gods. So here's a quick quick background. You see, up until this moment with God and what he would establish, the entire world viewed God or the small gods, all the these gods they worshiped. They viewed this whole relationship with a God thing as a paying a price. That if you're gonna have a God in your life, you gotta pay a price. You you pay a price because you pay the price to get God's involvement in your life. You pay a price, you pay the fee to get God's favor in your life. And we've talked about that. To do this to to to, to please their gods, to get God's involvement in their life, they were always having to sacrifice. The system of the world was, yes, there are gods, not a god, yes, there are gods. And if you want God's favor in your life, you gotta make sure you do the right things. You have to make sure you appease the God. So you go back and look in history. And you will find that people for generations, all they knew to do to try to get the favor of God was to sacrifice. They sacrificed animals, they sacrificed people, they sacrificed their children, they mutilated themselves, they would cut themselves, they would burn themselves. All because they thought that this kind of sacrificial giving of themselves, to burn themselves, to brand themselves, that somehow that would get God's attention and somehow bring them favor. All sorts of crazy things. They would do this so the rain would fall and and take care of their crops. They would do this so they wouldn't get sick. They would do this so they'd be wealthy. Do this so they'd be successful. They would do these kind of things so they could have children. All of these things to appease the God. That's the kind of world that, that's the kind of of mentality the world has towards the approach of God. Somehow we have to appease him. So 4,000 years ago, God shows up and he appears to a a man named Abram. And we know him as Abraham, as his name was changed. And so if I say Abram or Abraham, don't worry about it. I'll probably interject them both. So he shows up to Abram. And he gets involved in Abram's life in a most personal way. He comes to Abram and he says this. He said, listen, I'm paraphrasing. Listen, I've just reset the world. Great flood's done. And um, I'm starting over. I want the world to know me. I want the world to know me. I want the world to know that I love them. I want to have a relationship with this world. So I've been thinking through all my options, and I've decided on one, and it's the right one. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make this really, really personal to the world, and I'm actually going to start it with you. I got a really personal approach here, but I'm going to start it with you. So God says to Abram, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pack up your your, uh, immediate family. Pack up your immediate family, which wasn't really big because he only had his wife. (laughs) So I want you to pack up your immediate family. And he would say the word household because he would still have servants and people working for him. Pack up your immediate family. And I want you to move. I want you to move your household. I want you to move away from your extended family, away from your father. I want you to leave behind all of these gods and all of these sacrificial things, all these things the world's uh, trying to do to get God's attention. I want you to leave all of that because I'm going to do something new and I'm going to do something new with you that's going to affect the world. Something big. I'm going to begin it all in a very, very personal way, and I'm going to start in your life. So God says to Abram, leave, go, and I'm going to make you some incredible promises. Here are those promises in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. There's key, three key promises he says there. He says, "So you pack up and, and move, and here, here's what I'm going to do. You, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. On top of that, but also, and your name is going to be known." Kind of a side note. You mention the name Abraham almost anywhere in the world, and people know the name Abraham. God said, your name's going to be known everywhere. And even for non-church people who don't, have never heard the word Abraham in the context of a sermon, you know, you say Abraham, and they go, Father Abraham, amen. You know, so they know the name. And God said, yeah, I'm gonna, everyone's going to know your name. So the story continues, verse 3. And then he says this, so I'm going to do this thing for you, but he said, I'm going to bless you those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. Now catch this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's the peace. God says, I'm going to do something huge for the world. It's going to be incredibly personal. It's going to be personal to you, Abraham, and I'm going to start with you, and then in turn bless the world. In other words, Abraham, what I'm going to do for you is for you, but everyone gets in on this. But I'm going to start with you. No, This was not because, and make sure you get this, this was not because of anything that Abraham did. You see, the way we are wired in our thought process is, ooh, I wonder what Abraham did that got God's attention. This was not based on anything that Abraham did. There was no law to follow. There was no Ten Commandments. There was no good church attendance. He did not know more songs than everyone else knew and sang out the loudest. Well, none of that. None of that. There's no revelation for him to follow. There was no preacher coaching him along the same way or pastor coaching him how to live. All Abraham had was a conversation, a conversation with God that started with, hey, pack up and move. That's all that he had was a conversation with God. Now, three chapters later, in chapter 15, the uh, conversation picks up again. A lot of things have happened in that time. A lot of things in those three chapters. And during those three chapters, we'll go to, we're going to go to 15 in a moment, but in those three chapters of time, Abraham's been doing some thinking. It's very evident that in that process of time, Abraham's done exactly what God said, packed up, moved Abraham's thinking, great nation. You're going to make me a great nation. You're going to bless me, and you're going to make my name great. You see, everyone in that time knew that the blessing of God was signified by one key thing, family. You had children, specifically you had a son. That's how it worked. That's how that thought process. So Abraham's thinking this through. And, we, and again, in that culture, you didn't have a nation that was, you know, you didn't have a, a nation like uh, England that made up of every kind of race or background. A nation was basically a, a group of people came out of a family tree. So Abraham's thinking this through and he's going, "So wait a minute, you're going to make me a great nation." But everyone knows that the blessing of God is evidenced by having children. And and great names happen because of the family tree, and great nations happen because the family tree grows and grows and grows and we become a nation. I don't have any of that. I don't have any heir. I mean, Abraham's thinking, "I'm old. I'm past childbearing years. I have no children." So he's been thinking about this for quite a while, and he's thinking, I have no namesake. In fact, if we read the whole story, you'll find that Abraham says, listen, I have no namesake. I mean, if you look at my will, the only person who's gonna get anything when I die is my servant. My servant's the only one listed in the will because there is no family. Back to our text, now back in chapter 15. So Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate as Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my house it will be my heir. Now, again, he's not, he not being accused story. There's, there's no anger there. It's a, it's a legitimate question. And I might add, it's a legitimate obstacle to what God is saying he's going to do. And Abraham just said, I can't figure out how you're going to do this. None of this makes sense because... For some reason, in his thought process, for some reason, you've kept me from having children, or at least you haven't given us children. Keep going. And then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. It's a great conversation. It's a great conversation, as I said last week, if you, if you have a thought process about some of these obstacles, you've really thought them through, please know they're valid, and they're worth talking about. And Abram's Abraham's thought process is legitimate, where he goes, God, I, I just don't know how you're going to do this. And so God begins with that answer. Now, what's interesting in this, he says, everyone else has kids, God. Everyone has kids, My servants have kids, my servants' kids have kids, because it's old enough now that the servants' kids are having kids. And God takes them, interesting, God takes them outside and asks him to do an impossible task. God says, hey, count the stars. Now, I'm glad God said, if you can, because he takes them outside, so start counting the stars. And if if God says that, you're going to go, what? You're going to go, I can't count the stars. Okay, there's a lot of them. And so God says, if you can, and he goes, I can't. And God says, no, you can't. You can't because they're not countable. And Abram would go, yeah, they're not. And he says, that's, that's how many heirs you're going to have. Now, let me hear, let me just real quickly. You have, you're 75 years old and no children. Your wife is 70 and no children. And God says to you, look at those stars. Tell you know me there are? Yeah, that's how many. Is your statement going to be, well, praise Jesus. <laughs> Your statement is going to be uh, how? I don't get it. Makes no sense to me. There's nothing about this conversation that makes any sense that would make me go okay. He says, "Here's the impossible task. Count them if you can't. I can't." Abraham, God, in case in case no one told you, I don't have any children. Uh, In case you missed it, when I told you, I don't have any children, 75, she's 70. But that actually wasn't his answer. This next statement from Abraham is one of the most impressive answers ever in Scripture. And I would say to you that if you have never given your life to Christ with obstacles, this will be the key to that even being possible. But in this moment, in this next statement from Abraham... Is actually not just a moment for him, but it is now the new, the new setting of the new compass setting due north, of how every single person will come to Christ from this point forward. It's an incredible statement. Here's what it is in verse six: Abraham believed the Lord. Period. Right there. Abraham believed the Lord. So you could stop there. But it says Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness now this is huge now remember remember this there's no ten commandments there's no law no expectations of behavior there's no standards there's no preachers there's no teachers there's no seminaries no school no church no nothing all abraham has is a conversation with god and an impossible task to count stars that can't be counted and abraham said this god i don't know how now maybe he didn't say this but I have to believe in his mind, he's thinking, I don't know how. I don't get why. I don't know how long. I don't know what all this means. But I'll trust you. Isn't that huge? It's that simple. I'll trust you. Now, this next piece is equally huge because in that moment, he says, God gave Abraham a righteous standing. God, Abraham says, okay, I believe you. And in that moment, the Bible says, and God granted to Abraham a righteous standing, not because of his good behavior, not because of his church attendance, not because of his great track record, not for keeping all of the rules. Abraham is going, Abraham is going to do something for you and for the rest of the world. He's going to say yes to God and set the pattern of now what God will do for every one of us. Because in that moment, when Abraham says yes, God says, I'm going to give you right standing. The moment you just say you trust me, right standing. Not based on your performance, not based on all your questions being answered, not based on your past background. You can have the worst checkered background ever. And all you got to do is say, I'll trust you. And God says, i'll give you right standing friends that's how it's been ever since people will say to god i believe you and immediately god's credits to them righteousness you see we come to god on his terms we do not come to god on our terms this very very personal relationship always begins on god's terms what does that mean you see, when I look at God and say, Well, I have answers I need answered. I got questions I need answered. I got some objections, and quite honestly, God, before I'm going to buy into this, here's the checklist of things. When we do that, I have these objections, and unless you answer them, then no deal. That's actually coming to God on our terms. All oh, you are not. Be honest. If there really is a God who can say to someone, I will give to you, I will grant to you righteousness. I will, ra- I will grant you righteous standing so you can stand before God perfectly holy. A God who is the creator of the universe, a God who is the God Almighty, a God who can grant that to someone, I'll make you righteous. Wouldn't you expect that God to have the right to come to you on his terms? instead of your terms? For God so loved the world that he got involved and he came to us on his terms. Quickly, one other passage and I'll wrap up and this is going to just, I just need to make note of this one. The disciples, we talk about them often, we often confused. And I don't pick on them for being confused because I'm often confused. <laughs> And so let's not take shots at them for some of their confusion because we find ourselves in the same place. And just about the time you read the story of the disciples, just about the time where you think they got it, just about the time where Jesus would think, I think they got it, they say something which reminds him that they don't they don't have it. And one of these moments is in Matthew 18. And what happened is this. They loved his teaching. They loved following him. They loved seeing all the things that he does. And they heard, they heard the message of the, uh, on, on the Sermon on the Mount and all of that. I mean, the upside-down living, man, they loved all of those things. And, and they're thinking to themselves this. Man, it's all good stuff, upside-down living. But Jesus, when you're finally crowned king, who will be the greatest in the kingdom? Now this is a little different than the other request of two disciples, you know, well who's sitting your left and your right, but it's the same question because everyone knows that if there's a king in a kingdom, there's always the cabinet. Everyone knows every king has a cabinet. Who's, got the, who's minister of finance? Who's the minister of the uh, Department of Health, Department of Education? You know, who's the you know, joint chiefs of staff? You know, everyone knows that there's a cabinet. And so they're thinking, so in the, in the kingdom, so who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And here's what it says in Matthew 18:1 and 2. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. So get the picture. Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, we've really been thinking this through. And it seems like it's getting closer. who's going to be the, the, the greatest? We know that we're all equal. But admittedly, some, some in the kingdom are going to be a little more equal than others. And so, so, you know, who will be the greatest? And Jesus says absolutely nothing. Ask the question and says absolutely nothing. Kind of like when you're talking to your kids. <laughs> you know, you ask a question say something no response. And you'll know, finally you say, Did you hear me? Oh, yeah, I heard you. <laughs> really? Right? So Jesus says nothing. And while they're standing there waiting for an answer, just picture this. Now, again, we don't know exactly what it's like, but I'll paint a little picture for you. Just at this moment, Jesus' is sitting there, he hears the question. They're all looking at him. There's this little boy in the front row. And Jesus keeps, he's just taken by this little boy. And so he says, hey, f- come here. And uh, the child may be a little nervous, but he goes, no, 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 come here. And whatever it is about Jesus' personality, of course, the kid just runs up. And uh, hey, come here. Hey, hey, little guy, you like ice cream? Oh, sorry, wrong context. Hey, you, you, like, you like smoked salted fish? Um, you know, uh, he's just sitting there looking at this little boy. And maybe having a conversation and just talking like you would, to look, hey buddy, how are you today? Those kind of conversations. And while he's doing that, don't forget all the others had just asked a very critical question. It's an important question. And I can see them in that setting thinking to themselves, well, maybe he didn't hear us, Jesus. We had a question on the table here, or maybe they're thinking, this little boy, hey little, you know here, here's a denarius. Go buy yourself some smoked fish. We're having a conversation here. And and in the middle of all of this, we have this moment where they're saying, but we really need an answer to the question because it's a valid question, and it is. And so in the middle of that moment, Jesus then says, and then he says, truly, verse 3, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just note something here. This was incredibly personal, Because they asked the question, who will be the greatest? And his answer to them is, unless you change. See, this was not a generic answer. See, we read it now kind of in an abstract answer, like, oh, we have to change. But he's looking at them and saying, you guys, you've got to change. Unless you change, and unless you become like this child. And they're saying, okay, change. We'll do that. We can jump higher. We can change. We can memorize more verses. We can attend service regularly. We can sing louder. We can sing more songs. Uh, money? Hey, we'll give. Memorize scripture, man. We'll God. We, yeah, yeah. We'll change. No, no, no. You don't get change and become like the children, like children. What does that mean? Again, no ten commandments. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the singing the attendance. So what does it mean? Unless you are willing to come to God on His terms. You see, when Jesus said, "Come here," there's no terms. Just come here. And unless you're willing to come to God on His terms, instead of your own terms, you're never going to get there. Never. Um, And then he interprets it for us, and here we we wrap up. Verse 4. Because they're thinking, what does that mean? Therefore... Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, see the progression there. He has a child. He says, unless you change, and 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 you can hear their question, well, what does it mean to change? So he answers it. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can we be bold-faced and honest and transparent here as we wrap up? When we have these obstacles... And we have these issues, and we have to get them resolved. You know, bottom line, I have to get these answered by God. Quite honestly, if we're honest, if you look real carefully, it's it's a very subtle way that's pride. If you dig deep and look at the threat, it's actually very prideful. You see, And if you're honest enough and willing to peel back the curtain a little bit, we would find that maybe you've been hurt through life, you had some experiences along the way, but maybe you'll find this thought process. Things have happened to me, and I, I demand some answers. God, you want me to follow you? There's some things that don't make sense that I, I demand they make sense. There's an explanation that I need. I will just side note for you. I've yet to meet anyone who really cares about all the suffering in the world with a loving God. What they care about is the suffering that they have endured and the thought of a loving God. It's not the world. Usually there's something that's gone on. And so now, and so God, you need to sit down and you need to answer these questions for me if you're going to have me follow you. Quite honestly, do you really want a God that small? Do you really want a God that small that you get to say, I'm not doing a thing until you answer, and he goes, oh, okay, 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 okay. let me answer them for you because I really want to make you happy. I don't want a God that small. I want a God who can say, trust me. I'll get your answers, I'll get your questions answered, but you're going to have to trust me. Now, let's take these two stories, close them together and wrap up. One from 4,000 years ago, one from 2,000. Abraham said, I trust you. No question, answer that I need. I just, I'll trust you. And Jesus said, humble yourself. The way that a person comes to Christ, the way that a person experiences Jesus, the way that a person will make a decision is not getting past all the obstacles. It will be by trust and with humility. So wrap up is this. I've heard countless sermons through the years. I've even preached them to try to say, what does it mean to come like a child? And the one that most resonates with people is we come with total dependence on God. You know, we just depend on Him. Now, that fits, but i got to be honest. When I look at the words of Jesus and I stand back and I picture this, I come with something different. Do you know what every one, two, three, four, you know know the trait that every one and two and three-year-old, whatever, every child possesses? Automatically, they possess the trait of humility. Children possess the trait of Humility. There's this child standing with a loaded diaper, a snotty nose, and a dirty face and hands. And what does every little child like that need, want, and crave? Love me. Just love me. Now, if you love me, change my diaper. (laughs) But the bottom line is, it's real simple. Just love me. So let me ask you something as we close. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ... You're exactly one of those people who would say, I'm not a follower because I've got this or this this. My question for you is this what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose to say, you know what? Just gonna trust you. Period. And I'll I'll let the other stuff happen. The questions will get answered. But I'm just gonna start, I'm just gonna love you. And please know, to say that I'm just gonna trust you, God, is an incredible act of humility. Because you know, quite honestly. At the very heart of, at the, any resistant heart to God, there's a pride issue. If you've been resistant to God for many, many, many years, you're, you're very susceptible to not doing the right thing purely because, the, the make-sense thing, purely because of pride. So don't do that. Last week, I closed by asking you to pray this. God, if you're noble, I want to know you. I want to know you more than getting all of my questions answered. So this week, I'm going to end by asking you to pray a simple prayer this week. God, I'm willing to come to you on your terms. Just side note, if you've never given your life to Christ, that's a great prayer. If you've given your life to Christ, that's a great prayer. I want to come to you. I'm willing to come to you on your terms. Humility isn't easy for me, but I'm willing to be like a child and say okay i'll trust you what do you have to lose god loves to answer that prayer stand please let's pray father i thank you for your truth and quite honestly i i'm thankful that you're a god bigger than my obstacles that won't grovel and negotiate me to a relationship with you But we'll simply say, trust me. I'm also glad that you're a God that you twist no one's arm. No one's going to say yes to you because you put the pressure on and you got the arm behind their back. Nope. You simply look and say, you need to trust me. I pray for the person who's yet to make that decision that you, in a personal way, would be making yourself known to them. I pray for every one of us in our walk with you that we've got the areas where we kind of skirt you because we don't want to deal with that issue make yourself known to us.